Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that Ozark is not a retread of The Sopranos, when it kind of is, and that's what makes it great. So 64% of Americans drink coffee. That's 64% of Americans of every gender, age, size, ability, ethnicity, personality, location, politics, health status, religion, 64%. In general, we are a nation of coffee drinkers. And when newspapers and magazines and websites and social media and TV news cover coffee drinking, they write about normal stuff. Who brews what kind of coffee at home? Or who goes to Starbucks or a quaint cafe? And who likes instant coffee, lattes, oat milk, skim milk, vanilla syrup, or uh, cold brew kegs? Here is one article you don't see. You don't see 450 profiles of Americans who, for whatever reason, don't drink coffee or even despise it and lobby against it and think it's satanic because most people drink coffee and it seems fine. And if you think coffee is satanic, you don't need a profile written about you. You might need some time out of the public eye to kind of cool off. And also for readers, paying a lot of attention to weird arguments about how Satan's in a coffee cup is a good way to get people to freak out. Either they'll come to believe in satanic coffee themselves, or more likely yet, they'll come to hate the people who believe in satanic coffee. One thing you don't get by focusing on oddballs is a greater understanding of actual America. Okay, now let's switch to something 75% of Americans do. Get COVID vaccines. More even than coffee drinkers, we are a nation of COVID vaccinators. We just love our vaccines. Fully 75% of Americans of every gender, age, size, ability, ethnicity, personality, location, politics, health status, or religion have had a shot of the COVID vaccine. And that thing's not even approved for kids under five. So remember, 75% have had those shots, and by comparison, only 64% drink coffee. So by rights... We should be described as truly over the moon about vaccines. We can't get enough. We love them. We love the ones at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid. We love those government places and the weird gymnasiums. We love our proof of vax cards. We love talking about our side effects and comparing them. We love the shield to the coronavirus deadly disease that we now have. We love pontificating about Moderna and Pfizer. You know, we're like coffee snobs, but even more so because it's so many more of us. One thing we know about America is we love our Levi's, our flag, our coffee, and our vaccines. 
So why are we reading 450 17-part profiles of the unusual humans who have decided Satan's in the vaccine? These people need time off. They do not need microphones in their faces. It is very scary, I imagine, to think Satan is in common everyday things, like sugar or coffee and vaccines. Three-quarters of the people in this country have the vaccine, and to believe that those people have blood that is coursing with Satan must also be terrifying. We need to respect that they're terrified and let that very small crowd of people who fear what is basically the coffee of the inoculation cafe, the number one bullseye obvious coronavirus vaccine, we need to let them take it easy and not write stories about that outlier approach to existence. Because you read these profits and you think that vaccine rejection is everywhere and that vaccine rejectors are everywhere. And they're both extremely interesting and picturesque but also to blame for everything. And the characters in these stories become persuasive or repulsive. And then we get in an endless loop of hate and blame and rubbernecking and looking at incoherent anti-vaxxers like zoo animals. And they keep landing on our front pages, which can't be good for them. And they're in news clips and all their arguments. And all the arguments of the rest of us get bigger and broader and more caricatured and less tethered to reality. So here's my story about Americans today. It's kind of boring. 64% of us drink coffee. 75% of us have had a COVID vaccine shot. And everyone's pretty chill about it. Today, my guest is Dr. Nicholas Tiller. He's a senior researcher in respiratory medicine and exercise physiology at Harbor UCLA and author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, Confronting Myths of the Health and Fitness Industry. It's a fascinating account of misinformation and pseudoscience in the health and wellness world. Dr. Tiller, thank you so much for joining me on This is Critical. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I, I just, I've been following Novak or Novax. Djokovic, as people are calling him, um, with uh, rapt attention. My main question for you, and I think this is right in your sweet spot, why do athletes like Djokovic love pseudoscience so much? The unfortunate thing is that because Djokovic is such a high-profile player, he's, he's the world number one tennis player, and a select few athletes, you know, several from different sports have kind of spoken up as being anti-vaccine. They've refused their COVID-19 vaccine. And it's those instances that really take the headlines when really it's something of a logical fallacy. It's, mm. you know, a broad generalization because they don't represent athletes or the athletic population in general. Really, if we look at vaccination rates very broadly in, in athletic populations, certainly in professional sports and certainly in the US, they have vaccination rates that vastly surpass what we see in the general population. You know, if we look at the NBA, NFL, NHL, they're reporting vaccination rates at the moment between 95 and 99% compared to about 75% of what we're seeing in US adults. Hmm. And that's without any vaccine mandates. There seems to be a disconnect between that figure and what we're seeing most generally in terms of the, the prevalence of pseudoscientific practices hmm. in high-level sport, which to me suggests that it's less about an ideological standpoint and more about other factors like uh, sponsorship and the search for placebo effects and the conditioning that we have for, for quick-fix interventions. Those things seem to be more important. 
So tell me what you discovered in the Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science in particular about this um, penchant for pseudoscience. I mean, we see it in the population at large, but athletes and, and elite athletes do seem prone to it. I mean, why would athletes be drawn to placebos um, in particular? It, it seems like athletics and science would go hand in hand. Yeah, well, you'd think it would be axiomatic that in order to optimize athletic performance and health, that people would implement evidence-based interventions, the type of pr practices and strategies and products that are proven by science to be effective. But actually what we're seeing is something of a paradox in that the athletes who, by and large, really depend on high-level high recovery and really depend on their ability to adapt physiologically to their exercise training are more likely to invest in pseudoscientific practices. So when we talk about pseudoscience or more specifically complementary and alternative medicine, there are lots of different definitions, but we can talk about um, one specifically, which is uh, practices that are not accepted as correct, mm -hmm. appropriate or proper, and that generally don't conform with the beliefs or standards of the dominant group of scientists and medical practitioners. And so the, it's the type of practices like homeopathy, chiropractic, acupuncture, which are very, very popular, more fringe alternatives like Reiki and cupping, mm -hmm. which are very, very popular in, in, the, in society in general, mm -hmm. but particularly high-level sport. In the US, about 40% of adults use or have used alternative therapies, whereas athletic populations, it's closer to between 50 to 80%. Mm. And the higher you go in terms of the the athletic ability, so to more towards the elite level, the percentages get higher. So we're looking more towards 75, 80% in elite athletes. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it possible that athletes are simply asking so much of their bodies that they are going to want customized ways of handling injury, of handling, as you said earlier, recovery, of um, handling stress, uh, that may not sync with science. You raise a really important point. It's the fact that high-level athletes, they're often training two to three times a day, six days a week. They're pushing and pulling and tearing at their bodies all the time. And so their need for recovery is that much greater than what we see in the general population. And in elite sport, you know, I worked in elite sport for a couple of years before I started my PhD. And there is very much this ethos of win at all costs. Mm -hmm. If you're going to compete in high-level sport, you're competing to win. Mm. And there is this ethos of marginal gains. Every 1%, every 0.1% counts. If you think the difference between gold and silver can be a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. And so, as you quite rightly say, athletes are more willing to try anything and everything that might possibly give them some kind of advantage. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get into the whole kind of placebo effects debate because a lot of the time athletes don't realize that they're using a product that works only in the context of placebo. So that is expectation and belief effects. But if we look at surveys of athletes, many of them will say something like 65% of high-level athletes when surveyed have said that they would happily use a placebo product that was prescribed to them by their coach 
assuming that it improved performance in some way. Mm. So that they would they would happily take something that, that only gave them a psychological effect. And that stands to reason because the psychology is absolutely paramount in high-level sport. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, and I guess the problem, is that there are downstream implications of endorsing placebo-mediated products. Mm. One of which is that it's impossible to restrict placebos just to minor medical ailments and muscle soreness and sports performance. If somebody really believes in the power of a placebo-mediated product or a complementary and alternative medicine, then it's inevitable that sooner or later people are going to start using those placebo-mediated interventions to treat something that needs a real medical intervention. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of many, uh, many tragic instances that are reported in the media and also in the scientific literature of, of exactly that, people using a complementary and alternative medicine to treat something that needs, that will only recover, that will only improve with modern medicine. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, it's this idea of, well, I'm going to try it because what's the harm? Lots of athletes have rituals, right? Like, you, you know, they're definitely unscientific. I mean, tennis players, baseball players, you can just watch them and see the little ways they're arranging their bodies that are not quite tailored to the purpose of hitting the ball. But what's great about these rituals, I guess, is that they're highly individualized. I mean, it doesn't turn into, I'm going to use this little ritual or tick or movement to keep me free of COVID. I mean, what do you think? Do you have any athletic superstitions? I used to when I was when I was younger, before I really got into sport and exercise science and kinesiology and started to think more critically about those things. I had lots of funny superstitions. And I think athletes are inherently superstitious. And the, the, the funniest one that I saw, it was it was really funny, actually. There was a, there's an MMA uh, fighter, he's retired now, called Georges St-Pierre, and he's very, very famous and widely regarded as one of the best MMA fighters of all time. And one of the things that he would do was when he got, when he got in the cage, he would do this funny, this funny thing where he would he would tweak his own nipples oh. immediately before the fight. Huh. It, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, you know it wasn't a sexual thing. It yeah. wasn't it was literally I don't know if it was just to make him feel more alert or if it was just an inherent superstition. But if you asked an athlete why they do it, they they probably wouldn't be able to give you a very articulate answer. But as you quite rightly say. An athlete who is holding their racket a certain way or touching their nose and chin, you know, uh, you know periodically before a, a game or tweaking their nipples before a fight, <laughs> they, they wouldn't recommend to any other athletes to do that, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's something that's very personal to them. Are you saying tweaking our nipples is not going to give us any uh, protection against Omicron? Like, what are you saying here, Nick? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not a performance enhancer. Uh, it's not a performance enhancer and it's not going to heal you and it won't protect you from COVID. But some of the claims in health and fitness and wellness are are almost as ridiculous. Not quite, but almost. But beyond those inherent superstitions, they're they're very much self-contained. So the, the, the difference is when you have somebody like Michael Phelps, who was pictured at the Rio games with all of these circular bruises all over his shoulders, which turned out to be from cupping therapy. Tell us what is cupping therapy, just so listeners understand. Cupping therapy, which is an ancient Chinese therapy in which small glass cups are placed on the skin at sites of injury or muscle soreness, and then a suction is created inside of the cup, either through a suction device or through a heated mechanism. And in so-called dry cupping, which I've just described, the idea is that it stimulates energy flow, Mm -hmm. 
And sometimes the, the cupping therapists will, they've updated the explanation to include stimulating blood flow, but the principle is very much the same. And in wet cupping, they'll actually pierce the skin, mm. allow it to bleed to purge the blood of toxins and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All of these explanations, these mechanisms don't conform to what we understand as science. But actually, if we look at the scientific evidence on cupping, and there's quite a lot of it, we see that it's the, the effects are indistinguishable from placebo. So there are psychological effects, but there are no physical effects. I mean, I get we understand a placebo as, as, for example, a sugar pill when you're giving it against an antibiotic. But what's a placebo for cupping? So it's a placebo-mediated intervention. So it only it works if you were to design a study, and most of the studies are designed this way, they'll get a group of individuals with muscle pain mm -hmm. and another group of individuals with muscle pain. They'll give one group cupping therapy and one group will have nothing at all. The group that receive cupping therapy will generally report that their pain has improved in some way. And the reason being is because they've received some kind of intervention and they've convinced themselves that the intervention has had a positive effect on the body. In the very few studies that have been done that have included a sham cupping group, there, there's no difference between the groups. So they'll, they'll, they'll have a group that have legitimate cupping therapy, and the other group will have something that looks and feels like cupping, but doesn't follow any of the rules and, and strategies and procedures. They'll place the cups in the wrong place, or they won't provide the desired level of suction and so forth. Got it. So it's, what, it's what's called a, a sham cupping intervention. And those studies show that both interventions report less pain to about the same degree. Mm -hmm. So it's very much the expectation of effect that is doing all the good here rather than the direct effect of cupping. And the difference between somebody who is spinning their racket before they play or tweaking their nipples or, or uh, doing something else inherently superstitious is that if, we, if you look at the website for the British cupping society or the, the British Cupping Association, they'll say things like cupping can help reduce muscle soreness, it can help promote healing in the muscles, and it can help to offset asthmatic symptoms as well. Mm. And that's when we start getting onto thin ice because I wouldn't recommend using a placebo-mediated intervention to treat any asthmatic symptoms. Yep. Because if somebody starts having an asthma attack, they, they need some kind of bronchodilator or beta-2 agonist, some kind of medication that's been proven, that's been shown to help mitigate the symptoms of an asthma attack. You don't want them to start going through cupping therapy or homeopathy or anything else. And so that's kind of where we need to draw a line in the sand and distinguish between those two things. So, for instance, you get this former president saying bleach in our veins might cure COVID because bleach does have a disinfectant effect on surfaces, right? But it's very dangerous to imagine it as a treatment for diseases. So I follow you on that. But can you tell me about other so-called treatments that athletes use that we might not be familiar with? That there's, there's no, that what I've seen is that there is no end to the, the number and the type of interventions that athletes and non-athletes will try to use to enhance their performance. And it comes back to something that might sound intuitive. You know, you mentioned, for example, we know that bleach kills germs on surfaces and we can use it in our toilets and we can use it on our surfaces to, um, to, to kill bacteria. And so people who are not particularly science literate 
who maybe haven't had a science education or maybe not science enthusiasts, you can kind of extrapolate the basic data to to the extent of, well, okay, perhaps I could use bleach or some other equivalent, some kind of uh, a disinfectant to prevent me from getting sick from some kind of external pathogen. And we see this a lot in the sports world. You know, one of the things that is really becoming popular at the moment, particularly in team sport, is cryotherapy. And whole body cryotherapy is essentially the idea of going in and immersing yourself in basically a closet that's filled with... I've with, done it. Uh, you've done it. Okay, great. So you've got first-hand experience. And it's, and it's very, very cold air. The air has been cooled to somewhere between minus 200 and minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. And you spend just a couple of minutes in the chamber and it makes you feel very, very cold, at least superficially. Uh, but actually, if we look at the science on whole body cryotherapy, there isn't a great deal of evidence to show that it works. I wrote a piece for the Skeptical Inquirer about this just a few months ago. And one of the reasons why whole body cryotherapy is so popular is because it's, uh, it sort of harks back to this notion of using cold therapy to treat injuries, which is something that we've hmm. been doing sort of erroneously for many, many decades. If you get an in- injury, you ice it yeah. to reduce the swelling and it supposedly promotes recovery. And again, there's a bit of truth in that. But people who, proponents of whole body cryotherapy have taken this basic premise of cold re- reducing inflammation and they've extended it to whole body cryotherapy, mm. but they've extended it beyond the point that, that it can be explained by the scientific literature. What were your experiences of cryotherapy? I mean, I like uh, polar bear plunges and uh, Russian baths where you alternate between hot and cold water. So I just liked the I just liked the adventure and the shock of it a little bit. Um, and, um, you know, I slept really well afterward and it was just kind of a fun social activity. But I, but I think that's that's absolutely fine, and a lot of people report the same kind of thing. There's there's a social aspect to it. Uh, there's obviously going to be some placebo effects. Mm-hmm. There might be some kind of basic analgesic effect if you have a bit of soreness. The superficial stimulation of the cold receptors might do something, and that's absolutely fine. Problem, of course, is that a lot of proponents of whole body cryotherapy claim that it can promote healing. Mm. Some even promote that it can help to treat illnesses and disease like cancer. And so as with most of these products and practices and procedures, we have to draw a very clear line in the sand so that we we can use the, you know, the very reasonable effects. We can appreciate those, but we've got to be very clear about when we're stepping into pseudoscience territory. And then that's when we start making unreasonable claims that aren't supported by the literature. It turns out the health interventions backed by science are the not-that-interesting things doctors have been telling us to do forever, like eat well and exercise. But most people still hope for a miracle cure. Coming up after the break, the true story behind a product so fraudulent its name became synonymous with scams. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. 
So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Dr. Nicholas Tiller, author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. Your book has some wonderful anecdotes, Dr. Tiller. Tell me about actual snake oil, which is something you get into in your book. Yeah, so I started a book with this uh, story. I wanted to kind of give people this, this sort of, this access, this gateway into how snake oil came about. And essentially... Products whereby the manufacturers and the sellers of the product are making false claims. I mean, that, that's been around since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. But actually, snake oil, as we know it today, was derived in the 1800s during the development of the Transcontinental Railroad. And it was very arduous work. And a lot of uh, Chinese immigrants and, uh, com- and uh, military veterans were tasked with, with producing this railroad. And because of the very arduous work, the very long hours, the insufficient sleep and the poor nutrition and so forth, they weren't recovering properly and they had lots of muscle soreness and aches and pains. And the Chinese immigrants would massage oil from the Chinese water snake into their muscles, into their joints, and they were convinced that it had all sorts of healing properties. And they shared the product with their American counterparts and they too swore by the product And they were so convinced in the powerful effects of snake oil that before long they were touring the countries selling these snake oil preparations and uh, and antidotes to the public. And this is when you you'd look at uh, you know old Wild West movies and TV shows and and you'd see them staging these kind of theatrical exhibitions where where somebody who was uh, you know in elderly or infirm or you know they, they were walking with crutches or they were in a wheelchair and then they would take a sip of this, this uh, snake oil supplement and they would be miraculously cured. Mm. And so snake oil, it wasn't until the early 1900s till we had developments in analytical chemistry that they were actually able to study snake oil and see what was in it mm-hmm. and, and test some of, the, some of the ingredients for effectiveness. And they found that there was actually no active ingredient. It had um, a, a few different ingredients that, that warmed the skin superficially, so it gave the, the feeling that there was some kind of tingling on the skin, mm-hmm. but actually there was no active ingredient that could reduce inflammation at all. Mm. And so from that point onwards, snake oil was associated with false claims mm-hmm. and misinformation, but certainly not science and medicine. And the first chapter of my book is called Snake Oil for the 21st Century because most of the products that we come across in the modern wellness movement, in the modern wellness industry, are just modern incarnations of snake oil. And one of them is actually fish oil, which, which yeah. like they didn't have <laughs> exactly. yeah, vague changing of the creature. But for years, right, people have been taking omega-3 fish oil at various degrees of purity and concentration. And only recently has it been sort of debunked. I mean, these miracle cures just rise and fall and they stay around for decades and people pour money into them. Yes, and supplements specifically, I mean, it's it's a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. Mm -hmm. And there are something like, at the last count, there were between 25 and 30 
thousand different supplements available on the market mm. and a tiny tiny percentage of them actually have any evidence for efficacy the problem that we have is that people often erroneously assume that the supplement world works in a similar way to the clinical world so in medicine and in in pharmacology there has to be a minimum threshold of evidence mm that is surpassed before a new drug can go on sale. And it's not a perfect system that there are problems with the pharmaceutical industry. But in the supplement industry, as long as the supplement isn't marketed as a drug, which most of them are not, mm -hmm. then it's treated as a different entity. And there, there is actually zero accountability. There's no minimum threshold of evidence that needs mm -hmm. to be surpassed. And it will only be taken off the market when there is proof of active harm. So in effect, we're all guinea pigs for the supplement industry. One problem with advocates of pseudoscience is that they don't say they're in favor of pseudoscience. They say they've got the real science and everyone else is a big pharma shill or sheeple and they've done their special research. I mean, what about those kind of claims? I guess it, it occurs to me if only they were saying, you can buy this miracle cure, it's good for what ails ya, take my snake oil. That way I'd recognize them as salesmen. But instead, they have a whole other discourse that sounds like science. Yeah, of course. And, and this is very, very difficult because most people are not scientists and or, or, and, and or don't have a science education, a science background. And so this is something called blinding with science that is used a oh. lot by by people who are selling, you know, pseudoscience is that they, they will deliberately invoke science sounding terms mm. that sound plausible enough. Yeah. You know, in health and wellness, they'll use all of these different terms like blood flow and quantum and and uh, and healing. And uh, uh, two you, know, you used earlier, toxins and energy. Toxins, toxins, and, and toxins are are banded around like like confetti at a wedding. Yeah. And and really. Toxin, the term toxin doesn't have any meaning outside of acute blood poisoning. Hmm. And, and, but, but, but this idea of purging your body of toxins is something that is absolute pseudoscience, but people assume that, it, that it's related to a real mechanism in the body. And this is a real problem because unless you really have a, a fairly firm grasp of the science, you're not going to be able to distinguish between real science and pseudoscience. And this is where people like Joe Rogan cause so much harm because he gets scientists on his show. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about, but he's really got no business talking about vaccines and vaccine efficacy because he's not trained to review literature. He's not trained to read data. And this is the problem when people try and do their own quote-unquote research. I'm doing the, the quote marks with my fingers here for, for people listening. Mm -hmm. If you hear, do your own research, you may be uh, talking to a pseudoscientist or a, a pseudoscience proponent. It's one of the phrases, right, that comes up over and over. Exactly. Well, well people need to be open to the idea that maybe they're just not as highly trained to review research and read data as somebody who is paid to do it for a living. Mm -hmm. And... There's there's um, a wonderful book called The Death of Expertise that talks about this in some detail. Yes, this is Tom Nichols' book, right? Exactly, yeah, wonderful book, and and I think it's it's really important uh, that, that that we kind of acknowledge that the modern death of expertise, and it's been it's been compounded by social media. But I I always talk about it in context of I, I, I came up with this term, and it is um, uh, urgency breeds reality, and what I mean by hmm. that is. Hmm. People are happy to, 
you know, question vaccine efficacy and talk about, you know, arresting Dr. Fauci. And they're more than more than happy to set themselves up as as health and medical gurus. Mm -hmm. But when the the SHIT hits the fan, mm -hmm. people get real very, very quickly. If you fall to the ground mm -hmm. clutching your chest, you're not going to ask for a homeopathic remedy. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is, is that in modern society, there's a disconnect in health and wellness, is that everybody thinks that they're an expert in, in health and medicine, and they're more than happy to give their opinion on all, on all sorts of, of different interventions, including vaccines, mm -hmm. because it's not immediately urgent to them to have faith in... In a, in a medical professional. But mm -hmm. if we've got to be honest with ourselves, you know, most people, everybody's entitled to their opinion. And I will, I will fight for anybody's right to their own opinion. It's just that most opinions are not valid. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, and we, we need to be better as a society at acknowledging that and acknowledging when you're an expert in something And when you're not, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, so, you know, often I'm asked questions and I'm not comfortable giving an answer because I don't consider myself to be an expert. You know, mm -hmm. people often ask me questions relating to vaccines and COVID. Now, I'm a respiratory physiologist. So I understand this stuff better than most. Mm -hmm. But if I don't consider myself a particular expert or expert enough to answer a question, I won't answer it. And I'll say, go and speak to this person, go and read this paper, because I'm not a legitimate expert or certainly not, not sufficiently expert enough to give you a comprehensive answer. We've got to be better at doing that as a society. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And referring the question to someone who does know, always a good way to move. And just to extend on that, there's nothing wrong with deferring to experts. It's just people don't want to do it. There's nothing wrong with, with deferring. And to go back to your previous point, you know, when people are very, very good at cherry picking data, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you want to show that acupuncture is really effective at reducing muscle soreness, mm -hmm. you can find studies to support your pre-existing premise. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a type of confirmation bias. You can search out evidence that proves your pre-existing belief. And if somebody like Rogan believes that young, healthy people don't get sick yeah. from COVID, he will be able to go online and, you know, it's, it's what we call a congruence bias where you do, where you do an online search or you do some quote-unquote research to find evidence that supports your pre-existing belief instead of looking for evidence that contradicts your pre-existing belief. Right. Because nobody wants to be contradicted. Uh, words of wisdom you can share with that one aunt who still gets her research studies from Facebook. Coming up after the break, why is pseudoscience so seductive? Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, we're debunking pseudoscientific practices with Dr. Nicholas Tiller, author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. 
In this short time, we've discussed so many quick fixes and um, specious health trends. But why do you think humans are drawn to these out there answers? Well, everyone, everyone just likes to believe that there's something beyond our own superficial experience. There's something a little bit, you know, something else must be going on. And this is when we get into these alternative type practices because we like to think that, you know, basic science can't explain everything. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I, totally, I, I appreciate that. I honestly do. But what we've got to acknowledge as a society is that most of these products, most of these practices are not benign. And it's this idea of what's the harm. Mm. And there's a website, some of the listeners might be familiar with it, it's called whatstheharm.net what's mm. or .org. And what's the harm is basically a catalogue of hundreds and thousands of different alternative therapies, the huge economic burden, the economic cost of implementing and trying them. And unfortunately, many, many thousands of documented cases where these practices have had direct harm. If somebody uses a non-evidence-based practice to treat a minor medical ailment, what's to stop them from using one of these products to treat a serious medical illness? And this is, you know, not the first and not the last time that people will, ex they will exploit fear and confusion in order to sell product. And this is when people start selling pseudoscience or placebo-mediated products to people who have diseases and people who have illnesses because they, they're willing to try anything. We're seeing this play out with the COVID pandemic. We have snake oil salesmen who are crawling out the woodwork, mm -hmm. claiming to have COVID cures and trying to exploit public fear and misinformation. And oftentimes they are propagating misinformation themselves in order to sell their own, their own product. Because in doing so, it creates fear, it creates confusion. And that's when people become desperate. Mm -hmm. they, be they become vulnerable. And that's really when we're scraping the barrel. Now that's, that's a real problem. I have to admit, I started thinking, you know, well, uh, rubbing a little oil into your skin, you know, what's the harm? Uh, a crystal here and there, uh, if you feel like it does something. But you've, you, you do a beautiful job here and in your book of showing how it can be quite a slippery slope and part of a system of exploiting vulnerable people who are, who, you know, who come to the system unwell and sometimes end up worse off. Yeah, and, and I think that's what we've got to be to do better as a society is, is recognizing what the real harms are. Yes, on the one hand, an athlete helping to improve their muscle soreness or having a psychological advantage to mm -hmm. go and compete. Okay, that's great. There's, there's probably no real harm in that. But it very quickly bleeds into mainstream culture, into mainstream practice mm -hmm. because it's never just confined to muscle soreness and uh, and minor injuries it has an effect on all aspects of society and we've we've got to do better at being critical thinkers at training to become critical thinkers implementing critical thinking into education at all levels in school and college and university so that people can distinguish between science and pseudoscience not just in health and fitness but so that they can make better decisions in all aspects of society, because the problems that we're seeing with society right now, with political divisiveness and poor uptake of vaccines mm -hmm. and um, you know climate change denial and and everything, fundamentally at its core, is because of, it's due to a lack of critical thinking. So we've got to do our job to elevate the importance of critical thinking and um, and try and implement that into all facets of society. 
Dr. Nicholas Tiller, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. Over the next few weeks, we'll continue unpacking trends in health and wellness, healing, and the slippery slope from self-care to the self-righteous belief that one's body is too special for general medical advice like vaccines. All of that on This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer with help this week from Harry Huggins. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.